This is episode 23 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Eric Blicker, and we are going to be discussing the link between COPD, laryngopharyngeal reflux disease, and dysphagia. Dr. Blicker has been a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders since 2008. That same year, he received his clinical doctoral degree from Nova Southeastern University. In 2001, he was trained at Columbia University in FEAST, which is Flexible Endoscopic Evaluation of Swallowing with Sensory Testing by Dr. Jonathan Aviv, the ENT who developed this procedure. Eric has started multiple FEAST programs across the U.S. while training SLPs and physicians in the process. For the past five years, his company, Community Care Partners Incorporated, has been an ASHA-approved CEU provider. Dr. Blicker has lectured at several universities and has provided fees training courses in several states. His clinical fees experience includes working in several different settings, including long-term acute care, inpatient acute care, outpatient hospital, skilled nursing, outpatient laryngology, outpatient pulmonology, outpatient neurology settings. Oh my gosh, I'm out of breath just saying that. Dr. Blicker is the fees committee person and project coordinator in the Mercy Health East Market in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you are interested in hearing more about his courses, you can contact Dr. Blicker at ceucustomercare at gmail.com. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I'm so excited for this episode. This is a really good one. I know I say that all the time, but this is just some really unique information in this episode that like, we don't really learn about in school, I don't feel like. And It's really eye-opening to hear this information that you'll hear today. So I'm really excited for you guys to all hear it. I hope everyone's 2018 is going going wonderfully. We're like in the middle of snow apocalypse here. It's been awful. We've been snowed in for days and days, but it's plenty of time to catch up on CEUs. Um, And I know a lot of people were interested in waiting until January to start their MedBridge membership because they had had other memberships that expired in December. So um, if you are interested in... You know, if you're one of those type A SLPs that wants to get a head start on your on your CEUs for the year in January and you want to check out this MedBridge premium package, MedBridge made a website exclusively for Swallow Your Pride listeners. You can go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP and it shows you all the really cool features that I keep harping on. So if you want to take a look through the library and see what courses there's Dr. Grower, Dr. Crary, Dr. Brodsky, Dr. Carnaby. Those are just a few. And then it also shows you all the patient and family engagement resources and how that works. The patient family education handouts. Uh, There's videos of the swallow and dysphagia and various exercises. And there's also the exercise library with the home exercise builder that I think is just the coolest thing since sliced bread. So, and also the MedBridge Go app, which you can use and your patient can also use that helps helps you navigate these exercises and show you how to use them. So you get all this stuff for an entire year for only 95 bucks. Uh, so go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP. And when you do use that link, I do get a small commission from that. So just know that. And I would like to again, thank EndoHD for being our January sponsor again. So thank you so, so much to them. For their support of this podcast. I know they're doing great things with the high definition technology that, that they provide with their fees unit. And of course, I'd like to thank everyone that has donated to our Patreon fund already. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash swallow your pride. And thank you so much to everyone who's done that to support this cause and keep this podcast going and keep me sane in the meantime while I spend a bajillion hours a week making it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for your help with that. So I'm not going to ramble on much longer today. I'm so excited for this episode. So now we'll get to it with Dr. Eric Blicker. 
Hello, Eric. How are you, Teresa? Well, Dr. Blicker, I should refer to you as. I'm sorry, you're you're a friend of mine, so I call you Eric. But no, you can stick with Eric. It's okay. Okay. Well, good evening. How are you? I'm doing great. Happy holidays. Yes, yes. Happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah to you. This is the middle of Hanukkah for you, so thank you for taking time out to do this. But it's nice. I'm sure, everyone appreciates it. It's nice to get a little family break. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, I was upstairs trying to address some Christmas cards and get those out. You there know, you last minute. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, all right. Well, you know, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Great. Well, uh, my name is Dr. Eric Blicker. I'm a speech pathologist. Been working in the field for 20 years. Did my uh, undergraduate work in New York, upstate New York, my graduate work in New Jersey. And I did my doctoral degree at uh, Nova Southeast University, which is in South Florida. Lived in South Florida for the past 15 years, working in multiple adult geriatric settings, acute care, long-term acute care, uh, mobile fees, which brought me into skilled nursing, and to outpatient physician offices, ear, nose, and throat, pulmonology. Trained in FEAST, which is fees with sensory testing with Dr. Aviva Columbia back in 2000, 2001 in New York, right before I left for Florida. While in Florida, I um, was lecturing at Nova Southeast University in the graduate program for about 12 years. We would scope a student every semester, and I kept in touch with many of them. So it was a pretty rewarding experience. And um, along the line, I became a CE provider and started doing fees training courses with um, some wonderful people like yourself and some other trainers um, who have really been um, outstanding. And now I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm uh, getting ready for winter. So yes, yes. <laughs> you should be in the middle of winter at this point. But. Yeah, yeah. The weather here is a little bit up and down. So right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to to work with you. You know, you kind of just swooped me up and asked me to help with your fees training courses, and it's just been an honor. And I've met so many cool people. I think you know the other fellow trainers that you get to are just all such great people that I keep in close contact with, and I just you know love teaching people to do fees. It's so great to you know, have these clinicians that really don't have much experience with it and then get a scope in their hands and just the reaction of the first couple times, you know, it's almost like eyes wide open to, you open up a whole new world to them. <laughs> you're, to you're totally a fan favorite there. Um, yeah. This is they're so happy. I just love it. it. It's fun. It's not work to me. It's fun. So I think they're probably happy when the trainers show up because I can finally stop talking after <laughs> the whole first day of just talking the whole time. So they're happy for some new faces. So Yeah, yeah. But I do know, you know, your courses are, are very thorough. I, I don't know anyone that's had a negative thing to say about them. So and, and he's not paying me to say this. I just <laughs> yeah, I, I, I honestly you get just just such great feedback about how thorough the, the fees course is. So well, you're doing uh, a you're doing a good thing. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, coming from you, that's a really great compliment. So yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so what are we going to talk about today, Eric? Well, uh, a topic that interests me, and I hope it interests your audience. <laughs> yes, yes. Because if uh, you're passionate about it, then you're going to talk well about I'm it. That's what the, I want. I'm going to so. bring the passion this Sunday night for sure. Yes. So we're going to talk about laryngopharyngeal reflux disease and the correlation with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And there are studies out there that show a high frequency of LRPD, laryngopharyngeal reflux disease, in the COPD patient population. So tonight we're going to talk about my history with that particular working diagnosis group, talk about each diagnosis and isolation, LRPD and COPD, talk about the research that kind of brings both together, and our role, I think, probably most people would want to know, you know, why are we talking about reflux if we're speech language pathologists? But for those of us that do and do not do endoscopy who are aware of the symptoms, there's a very big role, I think, that we can play in helping these patients get to the right doctor for diagnostic assistance for medical management. And I think that's probably my underlying theme, recognizing something and making sure the patients get what they need. I think that's so important. So for me, working in Florida in my LTAC and my outpatient ENT offices, I started to notice this trend. Outpatients would be showing up with COPD and then my inpatients, my LTAC. And during fees, we started to notice a lot of laryngopharyngeal reflux symptoms. This is something that I've seen kind of fly under the radar with COPD patients a lot of the time. 
And there's a couple of reasons for that. They may not understand what their symptoms are, or we'll talk about that they may not have symptoms. And that's kind of one of the scary parts of this connection. LRPD, laryngopharyngeal reflux, is when the gastric contents get into the laryngopharynx and sometimes into the trachea. And COPD, which we'll talk about a little bit more, is a progressive lung disease. So there are some correlations that we'll um, talk about. But now, being in Ohio and doing fees here, I was asked by a hospital that has a high COPD admission rate to be on a a COPD committee. I was like, the first day they had no real information about speech or swallowing. They said, do you have any input? Do you, have, do you think that you have a place on our team? And I said, yeah. And I started spewing out these statistics and I keep them in the back of my head for a rainy day. And so the pulmonologist was just blown away because I'm seeing COPD patients with these LPRD symptoms that's just rampant. It's everywhere I'm looking now here in acute care in Ohio. And so I have pulmonologists asking me information about it, GI doctors asking me, and ENT, because there's a little bit of an issue with who's handling what, and that kind of depends on your setting. Um, I know in skilled nursing sometimes, being I work in skilled nursing too as a consultant doing fees, it's not always easy to get the specialists to come in, GI um, all the time, pulmonary ENT. So I realize in your setting, you have to work within the confines of what you're, you can reach as far as consults. But there might be patients showing up at the pulmonologist office with chronic cough. There might be a person showing up at GI with classic heartburn symptoms. But we're looking at these patients that show up at ENT with maybe throat burn reflux. And that's kind of where LRPD comes in. It's often labeled throat burn reflux. So last year, we did a course with Dr. Aviv. He was the uh, physician that trained me in feast. And he did an entire six-hour course in LRPD and what the speech pathologist should know. And people were blown away. We had people from all over the world taking this course. And he said that there are thousands of patients out there who are not being diagnostically assessed. He thought it was a problem. And he said, that's where speech really comes in. That It kind of falls into our turf as far as needing this type of course because we may not realize as clinicians what we have right in front of us. And I think to understand that a cough when a patient swallows is not always from aspiration. A throat clear is not always maybe from someone having something stuck in their throat, that there are other reasons for these behaviors. And inadvertently, patients getting put on dysphagia diets for a cough when it may not be an aspiration at all, but might be from reflux. So that's kind of where I took it from there. People say, well, what do we have to do with reflux? Asha says it's okay for us to work with this. Because I know people say, well, you know, yes, you do need a medical diagnosis to for reflux. It is a medical diagnosis. I understand this. So I'm not saying that we're diagnosing reflux. I should make that clear. We are looking at swallow function, and this is one of the things we might see. So I think that's important to state that a physician needs to make that diagnosis. But back as far as 08, which is now nine years ago, they mentioned in um, emerging areas of clinical practice that we should be aware of things like transnasal esophagoscopy, esophageal manometry, and esophageal dysphagia. So back nine years ago, there were little hints being put in that, hey, this is going to be coming across your plate. Be ready. Don't just play it off that, oh, we don't handle the esophagus. We really should have a role, in particular with endoscopy here that I'll talk about. So, Teresa, with LRPD, um, most people don't have heartburn. So with GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, that's a primary symptom. So there's a big difference right there in terms of symptomology. LPRD, those things tend to happen mostly during the day. So if you're at work with people, they come back from lunch, you hear people going, (coughs) like 25 minutes, 30 minutes after lunch. Those are a lot of the time LPRD people where GERD, the classic guy who wakes up in his 1970s pajamas at the edge of the bed, pounding his chest (laughs) and pops in an Alka-Cell, it's a plop, plop, fizz, fizz, as Dr. V likes to say, and everything's okay. Well, you know, LPRD is, you know, different symptomology. Um, That's interesting. I didn't realize there was such a difference. I I thought the terms were interchangeable. So so thank you for, for clarifying that. Absolutely. So people with laryngopharyngeal reflux can have heartburn, and I'll raise my hand for that because I have that. So primarily, though, 
it's the throat burn that signifies the LPRD um, condition. Uh, so are they, are they usually treated the same way? The treatment is going to be different because the symptoms are going to be different with the LPRD, which we'll get into as far as treatment. You have to look at really what's happening in the throat. Granulomas develop, different things develop, different uh, voice disorders can develop as a result of LPRD. So very, very different than someone who's just having events in the esophagus. We'll talk a little bit later about how many reflux events the esophagus can tolerate versus what the throat can tolerate. It's a significant difference. So the treatment will vary based on the diagnosis. Absolutely. They are part of the same kind of spectrum of one disease, but their symptoms and the clinical manifestations, that's the big, big difference. There are some crossover things that we'll talk about as well, because it's all going to start with the lower esophageal sphincter. That's letting everything in. So that's kind of the gatekeeper at the bottom of the esophagus. But there should be a series of events happening to prevent it from getting through the upper esophageal sphincter or UES. Those are the LPRD patients that stand alone. Some patients with GERD, the reflux does not all come all the way up to the throat. So that's a big, big difference right there. One thing with LRPD is that it's often can be called silent with no heartburn or indigestion. So I'm not talking about silent aspiration, but silent reflux where this backflow happens and there's no outward symptoms. So if you're doing a clinical exam, you may not hear any belching or have any complaint of indigestion from the patient. Um, that's something really, really big between the two that when they have silent reflux, um, you may have different terms for LRPD. GI doctors, some of them don't buy in as much to the LPRD um, terms. They are very, very much GERD oriented. And a lot of the LPRD that I've worked with is actually treated by ear, nose, and throat doctors. Because again, the symptoms bring to the throat. So a patient would arrive at our ENT office complaining of these throat burn symptoms and they arrive at a GI office saying, oh, everything feels like it's sticking in the lower part of my chest. So there, there are, again, some differences in how patients present to your office as well. But with UES, that's kind of the key for LPRD. The pressure should increase in response to esophageal acid exposure. So if that acid's coming all the way up to the upper esophageal sphincter, there should not be any getting through that UES. But with LPRD, that, that action fails. And that's, that upper valve failing is a, is a big issue with LPRD. Why don't a lot of people know more, a lot more about LPRD? Well, a lot of ear, nose, and throat doctors are not even trained in this. A, talking to Dr. Aviv and Dr. Jamie Kaufman, both out of New York, a lot of the doctors aren't getting this training in their residency for laryngopharyngeal reflux disease. Is it almost like a newer diagnosis? or It was coined, it just, yeah, it was coined. Yeah. It's not the classic GERD workup where the doctor does um, an EGD, the patient's put out, they scope through the mouth all the way down into the stomach. It's part of a new age diagnosis that's come about from some food changes that our country has made that I'll talk about as well coming up. But it was coined by an ENT doctor, Dr. Jamie Kaufman, the terminology. So it is newer in terms of thinking along the lines of throat burn versus heartburn. And that's, that's the big difference. Silent reflux might have no symptoms. It might have symptoms. What's a problem is that when it's silent and then a person has it nocturnally, those tend to be more severe cases. And I have someone that has suffered from that where you're laying down in bed, the reflux comes up and there's not any symptom to have it going on. But then again, you might be in a situation where it comes up and you have what I've had at least six or seven times, which is laryngospasm, where your throat actually closes off and you sound, uh, uh, and my wife taps me and she goes, reflux again. I'm like, yep. And I have to go and work with myself and calm my breathing. And it, you know, those are the late nights at Rocco's Tacos in Fort Lauderdale where I'm not taking care of myself and I'm not keeping away from the dirty list of foods that I should be staying away from at night. So working in this and having it is a very unique kind of slant that I have on, on this condition. So a lot of what we do, and we'll talk about um, food is medicine, you kind of are what you eat for real. And that's something real important in the management of um, reflux. But 
that when regular gastroesophageal reflux is happening, the esophagus has this acid buffering capacity that the throat just does not have. Well, all of us have done fees. We know it's a very kind of fragile type of anatomy, heightened sensitivity, and the reflux is just not meant to be there. It can be more easily injured in the laryngopharynx. Let's look at what Dr. Kaufman had to say. The esophagus, for example, can tolerate maybe up to 50 episodes of reflux in a day, 50 without injury, but maybe three episodes of laryngopharyngeal reflux in one week can cause injury. That's a huge, huge difference. And that's why there's such a kind of focus on this now because untreated LPRD can lead to things like, a, um, like uh, throat cancer, for example, uh, one of the many things. What's going on with reflux? Well, fatty foods, for example, can um, cause the lower esophageal sphincter to relax, lower the lower esophageal sphincter pressure. A hiatal hernia can result in reduction to lower esophageal sphincter pressures as well. So there are some things that can lower that pressure at the LES and kind of start to let things up into the esophagus before it gets to the UES. When it's not silent and you have the LPRD symptoms, you're going to hear a couple of things. Hoarseness, chronic cough, dysphagia, throat clearing, that globus, that lump-like sensation, those are with LPRD. And if you look at those terms, we're taught in school and as clinicians, oh, let's look for patient coughing in our bedside exam. Uh, everyone's going to get put on a thick and liquid, cough with thin liquid. But what if I told you that I'd done so many fees where it's the thin liquid, not what's going down, but what's coming back up that causes the issue. So it's a big, big thing that with a training with nursing, et cetera, that not everyone that's coughing is going to require the same treatment by us. And I think that's a lot of your great work. And I, I, I think your work is awesome with your social media pages is teaching people that instrumentation is needed. But I take that even one step further, not just to quote, determine if someone's aspirating per se, because I don't like to do R slash O aspiration. I like to assess the swallow. But in that process, we might be determining if someone actually pardon me, <clears throat> even has a pharyngeal dysphagia. It might be, and this has been happening lately, I'm training people in fees and a sniff, and they're going, well, this person's not showing any symptoms, but I put them on caseload. And I did the fees, and I'm seeing it's all arytenoid edema, backflow of bolus at the upper esophageal sphincter, and that's why they're throat clearing, and they have to change their plan based on the objective exam. And I think that's really, really big to, to come to that kind of crossroads. So, it's huge. Yeah. It's huge. I, you know, I know it's the, you know, rehab, the therapy and skilled nursing is such a hot topic now. And we're past the days of just, like you said, you have a throat clear, you have a cough, you have globus. Okay. Now you're on thick and liquids and now you get to do K and G sounds with me, right. you know, down in the, in the therapy room for an hour every day, you know, no, like we know way more than that now. And absolutely. Yeah. This is, this is great, Eric. So. COPD, kind of shifting into the second part of this, um, progressive lung disease. So you have under that umbrella emphysema, chronic bronchitis, um, asthma, some forms of bronchiectasis. It's increasing breathlessness. Now, it's not a part of normal aging to have this breathlessness and coughing that these patients have. Um, what we see in acute care is they're an exacerbation of COPD. That's different than when I catch them in the skilled nursing and their COPD is, quote, stable and being managed. It doesn't ever go away. It's not a cure for COPD. It comes down to really how it's managed. And I think that's where we really have a role. Um, being on the COPD committee, getting more referrals thrown in our way for COPD patients with LRPD for fees, I think we can make a real big difference. So with COPD, Frequent coughing is a symptom. With LRPD, frequent coughing is a symptom. So here we go to start to tie things together. Um, with breathlessness can happen with LRPD and COPD. If you reflux up into your throat and into your windpipe, you might have <sighs> wheezing. And that's also, so there are tie-ins that we're going to kind of 
get into um, in a few minutes here between the two conditions. Um, a lot of people with COPD don't know they have it. A lot of people with LPRD don't know they have it. So there are a lot of tie-ins between the two. Early diagnosis of both really, really can help manage these conditions as, they, as the patient ages. And again, who else is looking in the throat and feeding someone with an endoscope but us? Nobody. Nobody is. So most COPDers have some potential background in either smoking um, and some environmental exposure to toxins or even certain genetic factors. Those are usually some underlying um, causes, uh, particularly with the smoking. Um, I see a lot of my COPD patients who are smokers. There's, there's mortality and morbidity with COPD. Um, what I get in my hospital, a lot of people get frequent exacerbations two or three times a year. They come in, they try to manage them with a BiPAP, then they end up getting intubated probably two or three times a year. So the hospital will diagnose an exacerbation as an event in the natural course of the disease by a change in the baseline, dyspnea, cough, and sputum beyond the normal day-to-day -day symptoms. And that's something important. It's not just how they are every day. It's um, an exacerbation. And there's research by Menino et al., Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease Surveillance. There's um, different research by National Heart, Lung, Blood Institute that kind of puts forth this definition of this exacerbation. And I think it's important to distinguish baseline COPD versus when someone's in exacerbation. The cure is not there, but we can be involved in the symptoms to make sure they don't get worse. So when they're looking at, when they don't get worse, if it's when well, there's a reflux link, I should say, we are conducting upper airway endoscopic exams for fees. These patients come in with arytenoid edema, erythema, interytenoid edema, edema, excuse me, vocal fold edema, false vocal fold edema, um, posterior commissure, hypertrophy, these things that we're seeing on fees. And then I'll ask, do you clear your throat a lot? And the husband's in the room, says, she clears her throat all the time. And the woman who has COPD goes, I don't ever, <clears throat> ever <clears throat> clear my throat. I don't <clears throat> know. <clears throat> what you're talking about. And you'll see she smoked for 35 years. She has COPD and she's become so habitual with her throat clearing that she's not even aware. And so why do these people get to us? They complain to their doctor, I'm having trouble swallowing. Okay, but we're not talking about the chin tuck, honey thick liquid, effortful swallow crew. You know, we're not, we're not talking about the, you know, the, those types of patients. We're talking about um, being on the front lines of a condition that is $18 billion spent in COPD exacerbation hospitalizations a year. $18 billion. So if we can help with this reflux component, maybe we can make a small difference. Maybe. We might maybe. not stop it, but... To identify something that is unidentified is, to me, something very important. I like to think I can save the world at all times, Eric. So. Well, I often yeah. call you superwoman. So, uh, <laughs> I, I think that more trained clinicians doing fees can help more COPD patients with LRPD because no one else is looking into the throat. You don't get the same view on a modified. I do tons of modifieds. Trust me, I do tons of fees there's a very big difference from what you get to see. And so I'm not saying that modifieds don't have their place in our field, they absolutely do. But for this, there's really nothing else like it. Using food as medicine, as Dr. Aviv has coined it, and Dr. Kaufman as well, Dr. Jamie Kaufman, those and us, once the diagnosis is made, counseling patients on lifestyle changes, we have a huge role in a lot of this for sure. One thing that I like to include, actually two things, in my work are the reflux symptom index and the reflux finding score. And I think that speech has a role with these. I know some people with the reflux finding score, it's a little bit more um, advanced type of diagnostics, but with the symptom index, that's something we can all include even in our bedside exams. It's a simple questionnaire to look at severity of symptoms. So we're not just asking if they're having trouble swallowing, no. It goes beyond that because a lot of times when they come in, the nurses will just say, are you having trouble swallowing? No. 
And then we'll, they'll cough and they'll call speech and we'll come in and we'll ask them, do you have hoarseness? Are you clearing your throat? Excessive mucus, difficulty swallowing food, liquid or pills, coughing after you eat, breathing difficulty or choking, troublesome cough, sensation of something sticking in the throat, heartburn. And they're like, oh, I have a lot of that. And you're saying, ah, has anyone ever asked you these questions before? No. And there you have it. And you start to open up this kind of window and you're letting this air come in and it's fresh air. It's we're getting something. We're getting maybe to help this person where no one else was asking maybe the right questions, even their primary physician. And it's not a knock on our counterparts and our multidisciplinary work that we do. It's that we can be so specific um, with this reflux um, symptom index. Now for the reflux finding score, that's really more with endoscopy. It's different than, this, than the um, symptom index. You're looking for subglottic edema, um, ventricular obliteration. You're looking for erythema, vocal fold edema, um, diffuse laryngeal edema, posterior calm hypertrophy, granulomas, granulation tissue, um, thick endolaryngeal mucosa. Um, Dr. Kaufman also includes in there tiger striping in the post-cricoid area. But that is a very specific type of testing. And okay. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not familiar with that term. Yeah. Tiger striping in the post-cricoid area is usually, the post-cricoid area is usually smooth. But with tiger striping, um, it has a wet and edematous appearance with stripes. And it's actually highly indicative, according to Dr. Jamie Kaufman of LPRD. He's one of the people... Um, along with Dr. Postma and Alevsky, who helped create this val- the validity or reliability of this reflux finding score. So these training, and I've trained some great fees clinicians on this scale because it takes a while to kind of start to realize what you're seeing and there can be some subtle differences between them. There's also some gray areas. Some clinicians doing fees are more or less comfortable kind of identifying these um, highly specific areas that might be Um, you know, identified by physicians. But if we're seeing subglottic edema, if we're seeing vocal fold edema during fees, I don't really think we can ignore what we're seeing and say, no, wait till they see a physician. We can refer properly and describe what we're seeing. Descriptive measures to me always, you know, are the best way to do it. But that is, again, another scale that we can be a part of um, as well. As far as Research, that's what people want to know about this link. It's impressive. Jung et al. in 2015 found that these two scales were higher, statistically significant higher in COPD patients versus healthy subjects. So the reflux symptom index, the reflux finding score were higher in COPD patients than healthy subjects. These scores were significant predictors for COPD exacerbation. That's where I'm going with this whole presentation. Are these reflux symptoms triggering COPD exacerbations potentially? Are there related factors? Diffuse laryngeal edema and erythema in COPDers with LPRD. So they're seeing what we can see in these patients that are getting now predictors for COPD exacerbation. So what does Jung et al. from 2015 say? That this exam might be a clinical indicator related to exacerbation of COPD. So that's something that we're doing with these. Now, we're not stepping on the ENT's toes. I get it. I'm not going to say that we're walking in there and diagnose. No, we're not diagnosing reflux. We have to report our findings to a physician. If our findings include these findings, the physician needs to follow up. So that's our role for sure. I'm not stepping on anyone's toes or claiming that I'm a pulmonologist, gastroenterologist. I'm not. But looking further, Hamden et al. in 2016 described some clinical behaviors among COPD patients who have LPRD. They noted that COPDers with LPRD had hoarseness and throat clearing, excessive mucus and cough. Those are terms I've said already tonight. Um, Erisukal et al. in 2009 noted a high frequency of LPRD in COPD patients. Once the LPRD was treated, improving COPD symptoms were noted. That's significant. Again, we're not 
curing COPD here. But if we can help identify something that can improve symptoms, that can improve someone's quality of life, in my opinion. Because these people are walking around the mall with oxygen, they are having these difficulties. And if we can make something in their life better by what we can do, then I think that that's a huge win for us, a huge win for them, a huge win for the medical team. Uh, Julio Sanchez Perez at University Hospital in Switzerland reports that LRPD might result in aspiration of gastric acids into the lungs, which can exacerbate COPD. That's a big time quote from her. In Milan recently, in September 2017, a study was reported um, at the European Society, European Respiratory Society, where the same um, Sanchez said that again, higher frequency of LPRD and COPD, and that laryngophrangeal reflux, defined as the backflow of this contents, the gastric contents into the throat, that this is distinct. She says it's very distinct from GERD. She notes in the European Respiratory Society conference from 2017 that the LPRD patients that she's seeing have nodules, dysphonia, hoarseness, and the sensitive areas in the throat that I've talked about, when aspiration can pass, can enter into the trachea, getting COPD exacerbation. So these researchers that I just mentioned from 2015, 2016, 2017, are all stating that reflux can be a trigger for COPD. And that if these patients aspirate, it can again exacerbate the COPD symptoms. Can I, can I just back you up for a second, yeah, Eric? Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned that they're finding things now on the actual vocal cords that are yeah. consistent with mm-hmm. it. What can you elaborate a little bit more? You know, cause now that's a whole nother, you know, voice link yes. that we're finding. I know. And I know we only have X amount of time, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but there are voice disorders related to LRPD. There are vocal fold uh, cancers related to LRPD. There are some great photos that we have in our six hour reflux course um, by Dr. V. There are also some great photos that we use in our, in our weekend fees trainings. Our reflux section has become a biggest part of our fees trainings on weekends because these vocal conditions, granulomatous lesions that are seen maybe in the posterior aspect of the right true vocal fold. And then after eight weeks of treatment, they come back and it's gone. And so there are vocal symptoms when caught early on enough that can respond to treatment, whether that's medication, whether it's lifestyle changes, but there are changes. If we think about anatomy and the proximity of the upper esophageal sphincter to the vocal fold area, there's not that much real estate there. And so how many times I've seen reflux come up through the upper esophageal sphincter, bam, right through the interretinoid space and just bathing the vocal folds. And that's, it's that gastric, content that just shouldn't be there. And there's no natural, normal, clearing peristaltic mechanism in the throat. So what do we do? <clears throat> and it's, you know, you hope in some aspects that someone can cough because the patients that we'll talk about a little bit later in COPD that have sensory loss in the throat, those are the cases that really uh, give me some panic because, and I'm not panicked like I'm a panicked man running around panicking, but I see this and I just, I feel for them because there's a, some great research that has come out that says that COPDers have reduced laryngopharyngeal sensation. And we'll talk about that in a minute or so. But yes, I'm Teresa, to backtrack, there are vocal fold changes possible from reflux from the chronic habitual throat clearing type and cough behavior and or from the bathing of these uh, this anatomy and this gastric content that goes undiagnosed. Are there any specific specific symptoms that are occurring on the cords? Well, this, the symptoms that we would hear, going back to um, what, Sa- what Sanchez had said, she notes um, specific things, including nodules, for example, in, in her work. But dysphonia and hoarseness would be two things when I do a tr- when I'm training a team, which I'm doing right now, say key in on vocal symptoms to bring you into fees, maybe compared to a modified. So it's that vocal symptom change, that question, do you have, yes, I feel like after I eat, I'm getting hoarse. That keys me in that this would be a great fees candidate potentially. So I think that's my tie-in 
from where I'm doing my clinical, where am I going to go? If I hear vocal changes, I'm thinking fees. I'm thinking LPRD. So yeah, yeah, it is cool to have to have that option to do fees. I know I know some people out there don't have it, so I don't want you all to think that me saying this. Hey, he's saying this because he has all these things at his disposal. It wasn't always that way. When I was first running around to nursing homes in Brooklyn and Queens, I was pushing and advocating like many people out there are now to get these patients the testing they need. So I still do advocate. Being trained in both certainly helps, but I certainly know that there are people in situations that don't have both, but maybe hearing this might help a clinician in a place where they don't have access get patients to the proper testing. And I'm hoping that that can happen maybe as a result of this. Because I do understand different settings have limitations. We all know the financials have a great deal to do with that. So that's that's a real that's a, that's a reality um, in healthcare. So, if you are considering purchasing a fees unit, please consider our January sponsor EndoHD. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. They have a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by SLPs for conducting fees studies. EndoHD creates true high-definition fees images with an HD image with better resolution than legacy systems where you can view details of patient anatomy with double the resolution of standard definition video. EndoHD can be a cased portable system as well as a carded system depending on your needs. Additionally, EndoHD representatives can help clinicians set up their fees program www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. Why is reflux kind of becoming more prevalent in this population? The great work by Dr. Beeb and Dr. Calvin both agree that this began to change in part in the 70s from what we're eating, believe it or not. Food was acidified as a preservative to prevent food poisoning back with Title 21 in the 1970s. Baby banana food, as Dr. Beeb likes to talk about famously, is 100 times more acidic than a banana. Crazy. Right? So it's just, yeah, that's bananas. Yeah, that's it's bananas. That's, that's corny, but it's bananas. <laughs> yeah. But um, then they started adding this high fructose corn syrup as a chemical used in processing food. Well, that lowers the, the uh, esophageal sphincter. So there you go. There are connections being made with the way food started to change being prepared in the 1970s so they could sit on the shelf. And that high fructose corn syrup is in a lot of things. So part of my own reflux management for myself, I gave up Mountain Dew. I gave up soda. I gave up sugar. I gave up sugar cookies. I gave up some of these fun things. And I started to notice an improvement with me. Thank goodness I don't have COPD, but we do a lot of counseling because I tell you, this one hospital I go to, these patients with COPD, they're having soda on their tray in the morning. And I'm just, you know, I... And I just, well, yeah, at our course, at our course last year, when, when he was talking about soda, Dr. Beam called it like dumping battery acid. Yeah. yeah. When so, he was, he was on episode 12. Right, so if anyone's right. new to the podcast and you want to hear more from Dr. Aviv, he was on episode 12, but yes, I, yeah, I definitely laughed at the battery acid analogy. So when he was giving this presentation last year in Florida that I had put together, the woman came in with the lunch tray with the clanging of the soda cans as she was walking in, he goes, don't drink soda. And the woman kind of stopped in her tracks and kind of turned around and started to wheel the soda out of the room. So I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, say never have soda ever again, but again, you know, life in moderation is not always um, the easiest thing. But why the link to COPD? There's some great work by um, Wajika um, out of 2013 from the Brazilian Journal of Pulmonology Interesting now, from a pulmonary standpoint, why COPD and reflux? What are the causal links? Intermittent ileal lower esophageal sphincter relaxation and deficient gastric emptying and increased intradominal pressures are being seen. These conditions, LES relaxation, um, deficient gastric emptying and increased intradominal pressure um, are being seen in COPDers who are older and who have lung hyperinflation, coughing, and using abdominal muscles. So that research goes to mention these COPD patients, and I've heard about this a lot from my pulmonologists, they have lower airway bacterial colonization. And sometimes that can just kind of be dormant. But that research puts that increased airway inflammation and the effects of COPD 
exacerbation potential, reflux getting into that airway can increase the airway bacterial load in the lower airways, increasing the inflammation and the exacerbation. So there's a real strong link right there that reflux is triggering this exacerbation from the airway inflammation that's taking place. Masaki et al., the 2001 Chess Journal, notes that patients with COPD might have greater expiratory airflow limitations, and that may worsen reflux symptoms with COPD. So there are certain things being talked about here. Greater expiratory airflow limitations. They may have lung hyperinflation, deficient gastric emptying, increased intra-abdominal pressure that are all being seen with both conditions. And there are some links there that are real, real important to try to understand that there are some causal links between the two. Now, as far as how doctors are going to assess LPRD, Dr. Aviv has talked about transnasal esophagoscopy. That goes through the nose into the throat and into the esophagus. Dr. Kaufman, Dr. Jamie Kaufman, talks about pharyngeal UES esophageal manometry as his first line of assessment with a, dual, with a 24-hour probe, dual probe, simultaneous pharyngeal and esophageal. So, doc, so Dr. Aviv talks a lot about TNA, but Dr. Kaufman says that he likes to get that manometry first. So that's, you know, there are a couple of ways that um, LPRD can, can be assessed. There's a newer, another way out that's been talked about, um, salivary pepsin train testing. Basically um, looking at human pepsin to detect the presence of pepsin in saliva because pepsin is an enzyme that's used in digestion. So if that's found in the saliva, then there can be links to, again, LPRD. And so that's another thing that's used, salivary pepsin testing. But now why reflux with all of this? What's going on? Well, a lot of COPD patients I see also have morbid obesity, not all of them, but a lot of COPD patients and a lot of non-COPD patients I see make poor food choices. But I start to hone in on these cases I have, COPD patient with morbid obesity making poor food choices. 60 million patients with reflux, according to Dr. Aviv. And we're encountering these laryngopharyngeal manifestations as speech pathologists. The obesity epidemic alone is not the final cause. Um, it's that high fructose corn syrup being added. It's the dietary and lifestyle changes. It's the evolution of fast food to be everywhere. Does the potential for all these patients who are smokers in the 60s and 70s, who now have COPD, who have now become eaters of high-fat diets, possibly all have a link together, and that's kind of where all this is leading. Determining the appropriateness of therapies from the physicians is an important consideration. They might try to get the patient on a proton pump inhibitor. You may have heard these terms like a Prilosec, Anexium, or Protonics. Some patients take what's called an H2 antagonist, like Zantac or Prevacid, Less helpful a lot of the time are acid neutralizers like a Tums. Tums to Tum Tums. You may have heard the commercial. But um, a lot of the time they'll try a medication first along with lifestyle changes to try to treat these patients. That's usually preferred before jumping into different things like certain surgeries. Um, the fundoplication surgery, and I'll say it again, fundoplication has become you know a pretty well-known reflux surgery, depending on if a patient's deemed a candidate um, for it. But a lot of doctors will try the lifestyle medication changes first. What, it, what, is, what is the fundoplication, Eric? It's basically wrapping the fundus, the dome of the stomach around the esophagus, and then sewing it to produce a tight angle where the esophagus enters the stomach. It's probably considered surgically wise, the most single effective treatment for both esophageal and airway reflux, but not every patient is going to be a candidate for it. And that's, there are some patients and some people I know who've had fundoplication who it's not, where it's not been successful in treating their symptoms. So it's not a be all and end all in all cases. Um, it, will, it will often work. So let's say we do our bedside eval and someone has COPD, we see it on the intake form and you hear coughing, throat clearing and hoarseness. 
we don't want to have these people getting dietary consistency modification without an objective exam when it's needed to truly determine what's happening. A cough is not always a cough from aspiration from what's going down. It might be from what's coming up. And I know a lot of time people are compelled to change diets and clinical exams based on, quote, signs and symptoms of aspiration. But there are a lot of false negatives and false positives out there with our testing. And we have to be careful because if you can gather the great case history that we're all capable of doing and find out things from that reflux symptom index and talk to your patients and learn these behaviors and get them a fees test, there's nothing like seeing that bolus bubbling up at the upper esophageal sphincter and then spilling into the airway to give a picture's worth a thousand words. And why should that patient be given a chin tuck from a bedside exam, which might not even be appropriate? Why should that person have their diet modified where it might be a medication that's been missing for their lives that they've never had that they might need? Or maybe it's a weight loss regimen that they might need. There are so many things related to chronic cough that understanding throat burn reflux to me has changed the way I view the COPD population. Presenting the facts to the, to the physician is really, really important because to a degree in this management, we're doing teaching to the physicians. We're doing a lot of teaching to the nurses as well. I'll go through and tell them what I found in my reflux symptom index questions. And the nurse will be like, they've never even been on anything for reflux. They've been here for COPD exacerbation for the past two years. And I'll say, well, can we talk to the doctor about getting an assessment? Because maybe they can try something to see if we can start to curtail some of the reflux-based symptoms in COPD. And sometimes, even with a picture in front of the doctor, they might not understand necessarily what they're looking at. So I try to be very collegial in my communications and say, this is the frame of where this was swallowed, and here it's coming back up. This should be said not everything that comes back up is from reflux. There are other things going on in the esophagus. This is why I feel it's very, very important to get the physician involved so that we're not dealing with things like Shatsky's rings and strictures and other things that might be related and have to get ruled out. So I'm not saying everything coming back up is from LPRD. I'm saying when properly diagnosed, that's the key, getting the physician to give the proper diagnosis, which means doing the differentials against other things that be going on in the esophagus. That's very, very important. Two other things I wanted to mention, two really important studies that kind of pull this together. When we were training at Columbia with FEAST, which is flexible endoscopic evaluation with sensory testing, we we're pulsing air just anterior to the retinoid cartilage along the area epiglottic fold. That was designed to trigger this LAR, a laryngeal adductor reflex. And what Dr. Aviv, while we were there, the study from him from 2000, laryngopharyngeal sensory deficits in patients with laryngopharyngeal reflux, we started to see that patients that had throats that were basically burnt out from reflux were having sensory loss because the pulse of air that had to get through to the mucosa was not able to reach it through the edema. And so you were having COPD patients, LRPD patients, showing severe sensory loss in the throat. But they weren't all aspirating. They didn't have muscle and motor impairment per se to their swallow, but they had this sensory impairment. So he started to treat them for reflux. We'd have them come back after they were started on a PPI, proton pump inhibitor, their edema was less, and their sensory testing scores improved. So that was used for a time in treatment. Now, getting into some other research with COPD, um, by Clayton et al. in 2014, they did sensory testing on COPD patients. And they noted that COPD patients in 2014 were having laryngopharyngeal sensory loss. That's important to look at. This was in 2000 by Dr. Aviv. He's saying that 
laryngopharyngeal reflux disease patients are having sensory loss in the throat. Clayton et al. in 2014 are saying there's impaired sensory loss in COPD patients. So that to me is my link. That, that to me is kind of the culmination. You have a certain group of COPDers showing sensory loss in one study, and you have another group of patients showing sensory loss from LRPD. So is it conceivable to think that these patients might have reflux coming up and not even feel it? Yes. And if a COPD patient who already has sensory loss, as described by Clayton et al., then has reflux coming up and maybe isn't feeling it, it might be an easy way for them to aspirate on their reflux. That's to me is an important, important link between the two. I think patients need to consider the books by Dr. Aviv, The Acid Watcher Diet, um, Dr. Jamie Kaufman's book, I believe is called Dropping Acid, Dr. Aviv's other book, Killing Me Softly from the Inside, um, Mysteries and Dangers of Acid Reflux. What can be done with these patients? Explaining to them the importance of low acid diet. Some people have found that drinking alkaline water helps deactivate the tissue-bound pepsin. Um, I drink Evermore water, for example. That's become very popular among some LPRD people. Treat it. Talking to COPD patients with LRPD about avoiding the trigger foods. Uh-oh. Alcohol, coffee, caffeine, chocolate. Chocolate, yep. Tomato products, onions, and spicy food. Well, that was my day yesterday. So Yeah, those are all my food groups. Right. The, four, the basic food groups, right? Um, and I know a little bit of this kind of carries over to his uh, presentation, but speech pathologists can talk to patients when they have reflux and COPD about watching your food intake right before bedtime, making sure that you're elevating the head of the bed when you sleep, doing these things that we can help with that they may not hear from their average physician, so to speak. I switched to a low-fat, high-fiber diet myself, and I found it for my reflux symptoms to be hugely helpful. What is so difficult about getting the people to understand about LPRD? There's not a gold standard diagnostic test. Two of the specialists go about it in different ways themselves. It also goes into different um, subgroups for physicians because a patient might go to a pulmonologist with a cough. That could be reflux-based. They might go to a GI doctor because they're complaining of trouble swallowing. That might be LRPD patient. They might go to an ENT for throat burning, and that can be an LRPD patient. So it's about the difficulty streamlining them because of these different clinical presentations. And I think we can come in because we can be a help to all of those clinicians. I have worked in all three of those clinician physician offices seeing COPD patients. And it's remarkable when you can kind of get everyone on the same page. And I think that's the hardest thing to do, being understanding that this portion of our airway is shared by multiple disciplines. I think sometimes that's why these things go missed. I see pulmonologists managing these patients to just get the COPD stable. I see GI doctors looking, just doing EGDs and just looking into the esophagus and not really commenting on the throat. And I see a lot of times for inpatient difficulty finding ear, nose, and throat doctors and some of the community hospitals. So I think that the area of the throat is sometimes overlooked. And I think we have a role in helping these COPD patients get this one aspect of their management properly followed. And if we can do that, maybe it can potentially help the frequency of exacerbations. According to the research, it, it may. So that's... Um, my talk about COPD and LPRD. That's great, Eric. That's some, some really good stuff. Well, I appreciate that. And again, B 
being someone with laryngopharyngeal reflux and having to manage it and having to talk to patients, I think that it helps me because I, again, I don't have COPD, but I, I do understand the symptomology of myself. And I think it sometimes helps me when I'm communicating to the doctors and communicating to the patients. And um, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, I certainly think we have a role. Again, to just recognize the symptoms, whether you're doing a bedside and just looking at the symptom index, whether you're trained in fees and looking at the reflux finding score, but getting these people to the right people to get diagnosed. I think yeah. that's that's our role. Yeah. I mean, I think that's huge what you said. I think a lot of times we feel so far removed from certain people's situations and we just make recommendations or put people on diets and it helps to just put ourselves in their shoes. You know, what if this were me? What if this were my mom? What if this was my grandma? You know, you have a personal actual connection to it, but I think it just helps us better as a field if we can relate more to our patients. I think so. And again, you know, just sometimes we're called in, they want to know, oh, does this patient need a diet change? This person can have a diet upgrade. Well, what about when someone needs to have the reflux manage when it's bubbling up into their throat. Who, who's asking us to see those patients? I mean, that's something where a strong clinical exam can kind of help, I think, maybe some clinicians who aren't as aware of LPRD symptoms and say, wait, next time I hear cough in a COPD patient, maybe my thought process might be a little bit different in terms of what I'm going to recommend. And I think if we can kind of tweak our mindset a little bit to include this, maybe then we can help explain to physicians if you get lucky enough in acute care when they walk in, when you have that scope in the nose and you can point out and say, you see that there? We need to get that worked up. And that way <laughs> they can't say, well, I never got the report faxed to me. No, there's, there's the color screen in front of your face. Right. No, there's no fax needed. So. Right, right. All right. Well, this is great, Eric. Thank you. Um, I appreciate right. your time. I, I Again, just to watch what you have done um, here is um, it can almost choke me up. You have, oh my gosh! You have revitalized and reinvented the way that people are being taught, but it's a great way to share information. So I'm not talking down to anyone on this here. I'm sharing my experience that maybe I can reach a person who maybe can share this thought with someone and so on and so forth. But between this and your social media work online, I think that people appreciate your demeanor, your wit. I know from working with you, you just have a way about you that's very uh, people-friendly, so to speak. And uh, I think the world is starting to find that out. And um, I just, you've created a monster here. Uh, <laughs> that's the truth. That's the truth. Well, thank you so much. He, I didn't. I didn't pay him to say that either. So no, 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 yeah. no, no. <laughs> but I just um, knowing her from before this and kind of just watching this evolve has just been it's remarkable. It's uh, well, thank you, so. thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, I have one final question. Did are you prepared for it? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm okay. trying to be overprepared, but I didn't want to be too verbose and go over our, Okay. Our... So my, my one final question is, is there a certain paper or article that is, has changed the way you practice or has been a game changer in your, in your field, in your profession? I think it's the papers that I had touched upon, the validity and reliability papers um, for the reflux symptom index and the reflux finding score. I'd say those two papers kind of pulled me in and said, okay, I need to look at these cases differently than I ever have before. So those two papers, for sure, because I saw that these findings were reliable and valid and I could use them in my work, I think that was my game changer, those two papers combined. And if you listened, some of the research that I talked about, the COPD and LPRD links, they actually use those two scales and the the high levels on those scales and the low levels to kind of draw those links as well. So I think I'm kind of on track with that. I think those two papers for sure, they're really easy to pull up. Yeah. We'll have them. We'll have them in the show notes yeah, they're, too. They're, so. just, they're easy reads. And I think again, for your clinical exams to include that symptom index takes maybe a minute and a half to ask those questions. And you really could help 
help someone's life. I mean, I, yeah, I think it's that serious. So yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. And, um, happy holidays to you and your family and, uh, you as you as well. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening. Coming soon from Speech Science, Talking With Tech. With me, Rachel Madel and Chris Bouguet. What are we going to be talking about? Stop feeling so daunted by technology. Push the button. You're not going to break it. Help people start implementing. Maybe listen to our podcast and go, well, I could try that tomorrow. Conversations with the thought leaders behind all this. I'd also love to hear success stories. If it's working for you, then maybe it could work for somebody else. Go to tech.speechscience.org. Subscribe to our podcast and check that site for exclusive content that you won't see anywhere else. Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Ivan Campos, Lucas Stuber, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question, what is communication?